is Tuesday, February 23rd, and you're back on another edition of Kentucky Politics Weekly. I'm your host, Trey Watson, joined as always by Stephanie Steitzer-Holscher. Stephanie, how you doing? I'm doing well. Recover from uh, being pelted with snowballs by your youngest? Um, I have not recovered from shoveling that uh, insanity uh, last week. I think I really actually injured myself. <laughs> yes, my... Uh, I- I, I thought I'd injured myself. It turns out all I really injured for the long run was my shovel, uh, which which is, uh, crack, <laughs> cracked in half. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I just I've given up. The ice is just going to melt when it melts, so it'll 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 I, be. I so wish I had taken that approach. It'll be gone sooner or later. Um, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, I guess let's uh, start with the with the big news for specifically today, Stephanie. It is the last day to file bills in the General Assembly. So if you're a Legislator, listening to this after it gets posted around lunchtime, and you haven't filed that bill yet, time to uh, get on your horse and get that thing written and filed. Uh, a couple of couple of bills, Stephanie, that have been filed. Uh, I guess today, uh, this, at least the stories were posted. Uh, you know, I think since we've been on air, uh, the first one is there's a bipartisan legislative as the, from the Courier Journal, Morgan Watkins uh, headline is bipartisan legislative plan would create a plan would, would create economic development district in West Louisville. Uh, it's, uh, uh, sponsored by Senate president, Robert Stivers, co-sponsored with Gerald Neal, uh, Julie Adams and Morgan McGarvey, uh, that would, uh, create a TIF district that lasts for 30 years and encompasses the part of the city that stretches West of ninth street and North of Algonquin parkway. Uh, so, you know, trying to get a little bit of, a little bit of, uh, economic incentive going to spur some development in the West end to, uh, to help, uh, with, uh, job creation and and economic development for uh you know for for one of the one of the more Im- impoverished parts of jefferson county uh morgan mcgarvey's quote uh says this is not frankfurt saying we're coming in on a white horse and we're going to make everything right that's ever been wrong but this is the first response it's a recognition that we saw and we heard cries for change so uh, you know that that looks like a pretty good bill i would assume it will probably pass based on the the sponsors <laughs> uh, yeah so, uh, you know, that's one bill that was filed today. The other one that got filed today uh, is uh, uh, the uh, Robert Stiver's long-promised bill to uh, ban no-knock warrants was uh, was filed today. So, uh, I know he, he said this summer he was working on, on a bill to, uh, to, to ban them, and uh, that bill has been filed. So, it's uh, Senate Bill 4. Well, uh, like I said, it just got filed, so I obviously hadn't had a chance to read the bill yet. Um, but we will we will see uh, uh, where you know, where it goes, how it proceeds. So here's a quote from Gerald Neal. I, I guess it was filed yesterday. It looks like because Gerald Neal t- told the Courier Journal late Monday after reviewing Senate Bill Four that he's pleased and included several suggestions and a lot of restrictive uh, and narrowing language, including the clear and con- and convincing proof standard. Uh, so a cu- couple of bills that that, that are filed, being filed late in the filing window here, but uh, that window closes today. I'm sure that we will have lots of other bills to talk about on, uh, on, uh, uh, on, on Tuesday or whenever our next podcast is. Uh, so that, that'll be a, uh, that'll be a good discussion. It's always fun to see what bills pop out at the very, very end. Yeah. Another bill that was recently filed. Uh, uh, and, you know, we talked later in our uh, podcast, this podcast with Layla Kashan from KSAP about uh, the health conscience bill that's been moving through the session. But another bill was filed recently that is a sort of a similar uh, styled conscience bill that, um, you know, is is likely to rile um, 
my my progressive friends as well. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, having to do with uh, adoption. Is that correct? Yeah, it's essentially would allow um, uh, taxpayer funded um, child placement agencies, child care agencies that uh, you know handle adoptions and foster care cases, of which there are several. I I, I sit on a foster care review board in Lexington, and um, you know it would basically allow many of those groups are religiously affiliated. Uh, would allow them to essentially discriminate based on their religious views of the families that they're willing to work with and serve. What's concerning to me, what's unclear about the bill, I read through the bill this morning, is uh, is how that affects the children that are running through the foster um, uh, care system. Um, there's almost 10,000 kids who are in out-of-home care in Kentucky. It's a huge number. And it's uh, what what's unclear to me is, okay, so let's say the Baptist organization doesn't want to um, work with a gay family. Um, but what does it mean if a foster child is gay or transgendered um, and they happen to be um, running through the placement uh, through that particular agency? So, um, yeah, you know, I'm just scratching my head on these bills. Yeah, um, you know. And, and you, you get a, you get a lot of bills. Sometimes you get bills that are filed. Just somebody said, "Hey, can you file this bill?" And there'll be a hearing, and it won't go anywhere. Sometimes they get moved. Um, you know, so it, it'll it's yet to be seen exactly where that one, you know, what bucket that that one ends up in. I think there's been some some similar bills filed in some other states. Um, you know, so sometimes it's it's you've got a you know whatever uh, national group running around trying to get get these bills filed. Uh, so yeah, I'm, it's that's it's the it's the end of filing the filing window. You'll see lots of crazy stuff pop out. That's we'll see for if, sure. We'll see if anybody files the old Tom Birch bill to buy buy a uh, uh, attack submarines to patrol the Ohio. You never know. That could, that could, <laughs> that could always pop out late too. Um, <laughs> as far as bills that 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 were filed and are moving, um, a couple of couple of one I want I want to hit on Stephanie. Uh, one which is something that I've always been a big fan of. Um, House Bill 178, sponsored by Steve Sheldon, would take the Kentucky Board of Education and basically apply the same standards to the board makeup as is applied to university boards, which uh, includes uh -huh. political aff affiliation and uh, minority racial composition and, and gender and, and 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 gender representation that would have to match the make the, the makeup of the of the population of the of the state. And, you know, right now the current the current state board of education. Uh, includes uh, 12 Democrats and um, zero Republicans. So me as a Republican with a child in public school, I have zero voice on the state school board. Um, even the Bevan administration, I believe, had two Democrats and an independent. I think that's right. I have to go back and look it up on the board. Uh, well, another thing that this would do is it would add, this bill would add a student and a teacher to the board as non-voting members, which I think is a value. Uh, and also would prohibit the governor from reorganizing the board. The last two governors have reorganized it, albeit uh, Matt Bevin's organization was was very different from Steve from Andy Bashir's because uh, Matt Bevin's organization was actually uh, appointing uh, a whole handful of, of members to expired seats that Steve Bashir had, had allowed to to expire without reappointing, and the members had just kind of continued serving because they hadn't been replaced. Um, and so Bevin Bevin reorged it through kind of a different process. Whereas Andy Bashir just flat nuked the board the first day in office and appointed all new people. Um, 
that this would stop that from happening again, which, you know, I, I don't think any board should be allowed to, to, to be reorg like that. We, you know, there's a reason that these board appointments are staggered uh, with, with starting and uh-huh. starting at different years and, and for, and for different time periods, it's, it's to provide continuity of, of, a, of, of leadership and to ensure that these boards are not to uh, affected by the whim of whoever's in office, you know, it would suck if every, every four years, somebody comes in and, you know, blows up every, every board across the state. <laughs> it's, yep. it's, it's just not, it's not, it's not a good way to do business, but the, in particular, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of, of the proportional representation of the board. You're going to end up with more women on the board. You're going to yep. end up with more minorities on the board. Yep. Um, and at least for the time being, they could be a majority Democrat board. Uh, n- neither party is above 50% uh, of makeup of the state, but here pretty soon, I think Republicans will, will be guaranteed a majority on most of the boards which of course I like, <laughs> but that, that, that bill, I, I, I'm fairly certain that that bill is going to pass. So uh, that's uh, house bill 178 is actually being heard in the education committee. I think right now, um, another bill I wanted to touch on is let me pull pull the number up here. House bill 348. This is an interesting one. So this is going to create an office of innovation in the department of agriculture. Um, and it would this kind of goes hand in hand with Senate Bill Three, which actually passed the Senate, uh, I believe, yesterday, which moves the uh, Ag Development Fund uh, and the uh, another associated fund moves them over from the Governor's Office of Ag Policy to the Ag Department, and then this this bill would create uh, an Office of Innovation in the Department of Agriculture. Um, and and it would also I'm, I'm reading through the list here. Uh, it would. Authorize the Department of Agriculture to promulgate administrative regulations for the Broadband Deployment Fund program. Here's the interesting thing about this one, Stephanie. The governor's office was supposed to have promulgated a a, a, a deployment uh, plan last year. I, in fact, I believe they were under order by a piece of legislation that they were that they had to create a plan. Uh, they did not, and the window where they were supposed to have done it. Um, expired in late January, and I, my, I'm told the general assembly just kind of threw their hands up and said, "Fine, if you if, if you guys won't do it, we're gonna we're gonna give this program and this money to someone who will." We're the only state in the entire country, Stephanie, who has not spent a dime of CARES Act money on broadband deployment. The only state. Wow, we I are did one, not know we that. We are one of two states that does not have a comprehensive broadband plan. It's us in Mississippi, and what I'm told by people both in government and in the private sector. Uh, who are applying for these grants in the federal government to do broadband deployment is we get knocked points on the grant grading because our state does not have a comprehensive broadband deployment plan. This was something they were instructed to do. The the governor's office was instructed to do last year. Um, Can can you take a guess as to what cabinet this fell under that failed to make it happen? I'm going to um, reserve my comment. On Workforce that. and education. Thank you, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor. <laughs> Yet another failure by uh, by uh, Jacqueline Coleman. You know, she she failed on unemployment. She also apparently now has failed on broadband. And so it's all going to get moved over to the Ag Department um, who who wants it. And, and honestly, most of the places that this that this is going to be working with, you know, you're, you're not having broadband deployment problems by and large in Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, it's in the rural counties. It's in the more ag uh, areas as, along with the, the, uh, the, the mountains. 
And, you know, it's an area that the ag department already works heavily with groups like the rural electrical co-ops and uh, other organizations that are already providing, uh, providing uh, utilities to, to those areas. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a smart place to put it. Um, but, you know, it's definitely a slap in the face of the governor that, you know, he failed so broadly on this. It's, it's just, it's appalling to me that we're the only state in the country that has not spent a dime of CARES Act money on broadband deployment. It's just, it's shocking. Must mean we've just got it all figured out, right? Everybody's got solid broadband in Kentucky, well, that, much that, like that, electricity. That Kentucky wired that thing, that thing's just humming along, right? Yep, no infrastructure <laughs> problems to see here. Nope. Speaking uh, of, speaking of which, um, you know, we are still digging out from the ice storm, and uh, there's power still out to uh, to chunks of the state. Ten thousand people. Yeah, it's, I checked uh, the Kentucky uh, power website this morning. Ten thousand people as of yesterday afternoon were still without power in a uh, tragic situation. Um, reported in the Herald Leader this morning, a uh, a Laurel County couple in their 60s, a man and a woman were found um, frozen to death. Uh, the, he was outside the home. She was inside the home. Um, this is just, yeah. I, I just don't, I don't know what, you know, we, we, you know, the media, the national media wants to talk a lot right now about Texas and obviously it's politically convenient and everybody well, likes the, to the, the, up on the, Ted Cruz. But, but, but there, there are also different problems. You know, our problems here are, are just, we still have a lot of the state that you know, that doesn't have buried lines and lines are down and it takes and it take it takes it, some, it's some the of these areas. problem. It's it's a lack of investment in infrastructure. Problems. Well, no, nah, down, down there, they got a whole different set of problems with the with the stupid de- deregulation of the of the uh, energy industry and, and cutting themselves off from the from the board he, here. It's just yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. It is it is an infrastructure issue, but it's a different it's a different type of infrastructure issue. It's just we have but a, it's we, driven. It's all driven by a, a desire, a lack of desire to invest in infrastructure is, is it infrastructure week yet is it, or is that is that next week i have no idea but this is a um, it's always no. almost it's always almost infrastructure week i think that's yeah look i mean <laughs> I'm, this is this is a, this is a big deal and this is i mean it's 2021 i mean i i just you know and a lot of these same people they also don't have um solid sewer and water infrastructure out there I mean, I, I just don't think that people in uh, urban and suburban Kentucky really, truly understand uh, what it is like in the far-flung parts of this state. Yeah. And, and if they did... You know, and we, we've talked about this before, and, you know, I don't want to rehash it, but I think part of it is we feel like, uh, you know, well, we, we paid our taxes and, and tax money is supposed to be going to that. You know, they I, I thought they had it. And no, for 20 or 30 years what was supposed to be paying for those large infrastructure projects, which was the, the coal severance money was paying for $10,000 for this little league and $10,000 yep. for this animal shelter and $10,000 to buy a new flagpole, the VFW. And yep. it was, it was, you know, and it, and it, you can, you can look at the coal severance budgets. Cause I've read them. Yep. And it was a it, bipartisan it, 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 no, failure. It, no, it was not. It was Democrats in the house. You, you can, you can look at the projects being funded by, by that were put into the coal severance budgets by Republicans in the Senate. And it was large, uh, large infrastructure projects. So you look at the, if you had a district that was, that had a David Democrat Williams senator. district has a real nice state park was always very well made. Well, you, 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 you look at districts that had Democrat state Senator and a Democrat state rep 
And it was like a 50 page Cole Severance budget in that county. You look at a county that had a Republican state senator and it was like a page and a half because instead of instead of doling the money out five thousand dollars here, ten thousand dollars there, it was three hundred fifty thousand dollars for this project, five hundred thousand dollars for this project. We're done. You know, Greg, Greg Stumbo's was the worst. That's that was like a 15 page, 20 page Cole Severance thing just for Floyd County. Cause it was, it was like a hundred dollars here, a thousand dollars there, $10,000. Cause it was all about the big checks and the buying, ribbon cuttings. No, that, political favors. Yep. Um, uh, Sevi, uh, JCPS, uh, our, our favorite, uh, JCPS, uh, board member, Chris, uh, Chris Kolb is, uh, at it again. Can you uh, confirm for me if this individual has children? I, I, I do not know. I know he's an, He's an anthropology. He's an anthropology professor. I think he's an anthropology professor at Sullivan University. Um, I don't believe that he has children. I mean, uh, I, I just, I was, I, I almost fell out of my chair when I read this story where he's suggesting that, well, you know, folks. I mean, it's just too late. The kids are better off just doing NTI. The they're, 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 they're better off not disrupting what they're doing. I mean, now. what's a few more weeks, you know, at home? You know, but what I will say this, uh, and I apologize for not mentioning this in our in our pre-show discussion, uh, something that also equally enraged me, and it's it's democratic driven. Um, I am utterly stunned. The uh, Biden administration is not going to let states and schools out of standardized testing requirements. They, they, they are they are going to have a waiver program, but. I can't begin to explain to you. First of all, I am anti-standardized testing, okay, uh, for many reasons that we can talk about in a later show. But I can't even wrap my head around the fact that what may end up happening is that the few weeks these kids do get back in school is going to be spent proctoring exams that many of them are likely not ready for and aren't going to be ready for. I mean, and what those numbers are going to be used to do. I, I just, this is I mean, insane to me. I mean, what, what value is, are the test results going to have? I, I, I don't, I don't know. Less than they usually do, which yeah. is already pretty. It's already, already low. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I saw that today. Uh, the state school board, uh, or the state board, uh, board of education came out and said that they are going to apply for a waiver to, uh, attempt to, uh, to, to push back. I mean, I understand that, that there is a need to, to have some level of accountability and, and, and some, but this isn't how to do it. No, no, it's not. It's, it's, it's absolutely not. This is, this is going to be, I mean, progressives ought to be outraged by this because this is going to punish low income minority school districts, school areas, because, you know, we're going to see, we know that those kids were the ones that weren't afforded the opportunities. They couldn't go to fancy pods. Um, They're the ones that were most likely to struggle during this pandemic uh, because they struggle in non-pandemic years because of lack of resources, institutional racism, structural, historical problems, right? So, so this is, um, to me, this is uh, insane that they're even making states go through waivers. Like, Teachers, and you can't pretend to be pro-teacher and then dump this on their heads after everything they've been through in the last year. Well, to be to to be fair, the larger teacher unions in the country are just flat refusing to go back to teaching after after getting their vaccines. That just, yeah, I have a problem with that. Whole, whole other, 
we could talk about it uh, <laughs> on a future podcast. But uh, what a bait and switch! Yes, and, and which, by the way, Chris Chris Cole is totally cool with and thinks that we shouldn't go back till like next year. So no, JCPS. Uh, if you live in Louisville, please vote, do the rest of us a favor and vote that guy out. Um, Stephanie, I know there's a couple of stories dealing with Louisville and Lexington uh, police uh, departments that you would like to discuss. Yeah, so this is interesting. You know, we had this conversation weeks ago, and that's kind of why I want to come back to it. You and I talked a little bit about, um, you know, police and their rights uh, to exercise their, uh, their, their freedom to protest and speech. Um, so, so two interesting cases, uh, one out of Louisville uh, just unfolding this weekend. Apparently, a, uh, a Louisville Metro Police officer was photographed, uh, spotted at in front of the Louisville um, abortion clinic, which uh, for many who don't know, may not be familiar with this outside of Louisville. This is a, this is a big, uh, long going, long running issue. Uh, protesters, anti-abortion protesters who, who are exercising their um, right to free speech, perhaps they might uh, be exercising that right a little bit too close to the, um, to the door of the building to where this uh, has, has become more harassment, less protest of the, of the um, individuals seeking care at the clinics. Uh, but apparently an officer was um, spotted at the, um, uh, you know, mingling with these protesters may have walked with a sign. I haven't seen a photo of it, uh, of him with a sign, but um, so a lot of, uh, you know, the, the progressive activists in Louisville are very upset about this. There's Louisville Metro is investigating the situation. Um, you know, it's not clear to me whether he was on duty. Um, he showed up in a police cruiser. Um, that's very clear from the picture. Um, so that is happening. Um, while at the same time last week in Lexington, um, uh, folks are uh, upset. A, a black uh, police officer in Lexington was fired. Uh, Lexington Urban Count, uh, Council voted unanimously to fire um, uh, Mr. Middleton uh, for uh, apparently providing information to Black Lives Matter protesters over the summer. Um, Lawrence uh, Weathers, uh, Lexington's police chief, who I believe, Trey, he's also Black? Yes. Yes. Uh, he recommended, as well as an internal police disciplinary board, recommended um, Jervis Middleton be fired for vi- violating several department policies. Um, the ACLU uh, and others are speaking out against this. Um, you know, this, uh, first of all, begs some important questions. Uh, you know, this raises issues, you know, um, Lexington Urban Council under, under, you know, open records laws that exclude uh, disciplinary and personnel matters from, from the sunlight. This is a, a bit of an issue because we don't really know what was discussed in this in I, this meeting. I, I will say this, Stephanie, if I had to wager a gamble as to exactly the, the reasoning for the for the uh, uh, dismissal is having well, we didn't have to wager well, a gamble. Right? Well, but, but I'm, I, mean, I'm, well, I'm, I don't I don't think it's going to be what you think it is. I, I, I think, you know, having worked several major events, including, uh, you know, People like the president, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, vice president coming coming to Lexington and ha- having dealt with the Lexington PD on a number of those issues. They have a very uh, good open line of communication with with mm-hmm. most of the different protest and activist groups in, 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 in the city. Um, my assumption is he was fired for uh, for going around the official channels through 
via which the police department communicates with those groups to help facilitate peaceful protests Mm -hmm. going going around those channels and i would if i had to bet i would bet he was told specifically Mm -hmm. let let the let the the way we usually handle it handle it and don't do it and he 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 went around it i you know i don't i don't know i have no inside info but just knowing how good they usually are at coordinating with those sorts of groups and making sure that that uh, you know, when we we did not see widespread violence or looting or fires or anything like you saw in other cities in Lexington, we saw uh, pretty peaceful protests that I that I roundly praised last year the way yeah. that the way that the protesters handled themselves and and that that can only come with facilitation cooperation with the police department to make sure everybody's on the same page and if you've got one police officer going going uh, going rogue and attempting to circumvent the the, the larger discussions then that that puts that puts officers in danger and it, and it puts protesters in danger well that's the question and that's what we don't really know because a lot of this was done behind closed doors um you know there's there's debate over whether what he uh gave out uh did uh, put officers in jeopardy we we don't really know the answer to that the other uh issue is whether or not um, firing was warranted, uh, you know, when you, you, when yeah. you look across the country historically, uh, even within Lexington Police's um, own agency, you know, uh, there was a, a, an, an, uh, an officer who was involved in a, um, an altercation at the Fayette Mall um, a while back. Uh, the, who, uh, the, the, the pastor or whatever yeah. you call the, the guys on the, but yep. you know, whether, okay, we're, we, we terminate this guy for this, but you know, guys that use excessive force, uh, they don't get the same level of, of, of discipline, but it raises another question to me or, or interest. What's interesting to me about these two cases sort of being juxtaposed in their timing is the involvement of police officers in protests and political activity. We talked about this, about, you know, the officers from around the country who were at the uh, Capitol on January 6th and the insurrection. And, um, you know, between this officer at the abortion clinic, you know, you it, it, it raises some interesting questions, right? If it's not okay for an officer to participate in, in protests in front of the clinic, in uh, the abortion clinic, is it okay for an officer to be sort of coordinating, supporting with protesters that that they're friendly with right and this is where the whole pandora's box is open i think of um you know police um protests and political activity and expressing their personal views and i don't know what the answer is but um i think that we're going to hear more and more about this going forward um and it's just going to be something um we're going to have to figure out what the standard needs to be yeah and and and, you know and i i think the discussion probably I think police officers are more fraught because they are tasked with tasked with enforcing the law. But I, you know, I think the discussion probably needs to include uh, anyone who's who's on the public dole, whether you're a, a state employee, you're a teacher, yep. you work for the city. If if you're being paid with taxpayer dollars, you know, you what what's you know what what responsibility do you have to comport yourself in the manner in which you know taxpayers would, would expect uh you know of course then you you run into first amendment issues you Absolutely. know it's, it's on your private time so you know there there i think we're going to have a larger discussion in this country about about those sorts of things where it's going to come down i don't know i don't even know where, where i stand 
personally. I don't it. either. I, I'm really but, struggling with this because when I saw, you know, the, the abortion protests, I was, I was, Oh, I'm outraged. You know, and again, some of my outrage stems from the fact that, that these protesters just need to back the F up, right. They're just too close to this door and they are just straight harassing these people. Uh, but if it's, you know, but if, if I'm going to be pro first amendment, <clears throat> I can't be, uh, I can't say he can't exercise his right, but then yeah. I want to support the guy in Lexington who was helping Black Lives Matters protesters, right? Be, be, being pro-First Amendment necessitates that you're going to be uncomfortable sometimes. Absolutely. But I also think there's, I have questions of, you know, when you are a police officer, this is beyond just a general state employee, a bureaucrat, a teacher. You are uh, at the front of public safety, public trust, right? Yep. I mean, if you're spotted if you're a police officer and you're spotted on the nightly news, you know, carrying, you know, borderline hate speech signs at a protest, but then I see you, you know, in my patrolling my neighborhood, you know, let's say I'm supporting, you know, some of this white supremacy crap, but then, then you're spotted patrolling black neighborhoods, you know, there's questions of, of, you know, uh, are they going to be um, fair and unbiased? And, you know, I just don't know. What the, I don't know. I mean, the ultimate first amendment rights come down to it, but I also feel like if you're making a choice to get into law enforcement, you know, it's just like me when I was in the press, I couldn't just spout my political opinions freely uh, because I was bound by, you know, professional rules and ethics. Yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, you just have to commandeer the newspaper's Twitter account and express your opinions like John Sheaves, you know, it's, it's just, Sometimes you got to go that direction. It's is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's kind of kind of move along your uh, um, Kentucky Kingdom. Steffi, that announced today, Kentucky Kingdom has been sold to the owner to a company called uh, Hershen, I guess they say, Family Entertainment, and they uh, they also own Dollywood and the Newport Aquarium. So, uh, you know, Dollywood's, they've been significant investment there over the years. It's, it's uh, re remains a, a very popular destination in, in, uh, in Gatlinburg. So hopefully uh, that, uh, that group will help Kentucky Kingdom continue to uh, provide a ton of jobs for the teenage sect up in, uh, up in Louisville <laughs> during the summer. Um, another bill I wanted to get, uh, I forgot to, to talk about, Stephanie, is uh, let me, bill number, Senate Bill 15, which I think is of great interest to both of us which will allow uh, uh, microbreweries producing under a certain <laughs> barrel uh, level to self-distribute their beer uh, to, to, to retailers of the state. For those of you who don't know, uh, going back to immediately after Prohibition, there is this really arcane uh, system in place that is called the three-tier system, uh, where a brewery cannot sell beer to a retailer uh, and a wholesaler cannot brew beer, which we've made a whole bunch of loopholes in this. There was a big fight about it a couple of years ago where Stumbo pushed through a bill for Anheuser-Busch to buy the uh, the uh, uh, AV distributor in Owensboro and, and, and actually own it. Um, but, uh, you know, so you, you can't just it, – it, it's, it's largely a tax collection thing is what it is, to be honest, because we, we, we tax, of course – Alcohol is one of the few things that states that it's double taxed. It gets taxed at the wholesale uh, level that excise tax and also gets taxed retail. Um, but it, 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 
it's just it's it's this weird convoluted system that had a purpose at one point in time it no longer serves a purpose except it's like most of our ab uh, yeah. laws <laughs> yeah ex- except for to stifle to stifle uh, small microbreweries and uh, to their credit the beer holders wholesale distributors profits the, well the wholesale association is actually supporting this bill i think because you know you're getting to where there's so many breweries it's not there's no money for these wholesalers to to take on uh you know firefly from down in down in a uh uh, Somerset and and distribute their beer. There's there's no profit in, in, in it for them. So I see. Okay. It, th- this this allows if you're a, if you're a, on the small end of of and I, and I don't I don't know what the barrel limit is. I'd have to look the bill up. Um, but it allows smaller breweries to now be able to go you know to, to basically throw your kegs in the back of a truck, and go around town, and say, hey, would you like to put some of our beer on tap at your bar? And they can sell direct to a to a retailer, or if they if they do uh, canning or bottling, uh, be able to sell it to a to a, a liquor store or, or or wherever that's got got space for it or skew for it on the shelf. Um, I, it's a great thing for brute for for microbreweries. It's going to mean uh, more choices for consumers, and uh, you know, good on the on the beer wholesalers for for realizing that you know getting out of the way. They're 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 not truly competing. There wasn't any money in it for them to to keep keep these brew pubs under their thumb it's all was a nuisance because they had to go through these these uh these wholesalers and uh you know it it's i think it's a win for for that any number is it a win for consumers yeah it's it's, it's, slightly cheaper no um no but it'll make it more available more available yeah it it it, like i said it, it means that you could you can throw you know, a, a, a small brewery can just throw a bunch of kegs in the back of a truck and run around town saying, Hey, you want, you want to put this on tap at your bar? Cool. It doesn't have to go. And, and another thing it'll do actually, it'll make it a lot easier for uh, beer festivals. Oh, because yeah. pre- previously, you know, you couldn't just get a bunch of breweries to commit to beer festival. You have to, yes. go, you, have, you have to go through, even if the brewery commits, you have to go through either a retailer or a wholesaler uh, to, to, to get it all lined up. Um, actually, I think you have to go through both because you have you have to buy it from from a retailer, um, and so this this will this will completely kind of circumvent that. And so I, I would suspect you might see a lot more. Uh, a lot seems more, like Kentucky uh, has really uh, seems like the Kentucky legislature has really been moving uh, fast in um, and in you know revising some of our antiquated um, alcohol rules lately. You had Adam Koenig's um, law last year that finally allows people like your wife to order uh, wine from wine clubs. Um, you've got the bill going through this uh, session that will allow, uh, you know, moving forward, permanent takeout of um, to go. Uh, I, I can, I'll say this on, on the, on at least the craft beer side. Um, and I think the bourbon side as well, but I know, I know for a fact the craft beer side, cause I've worked with a lot of those guys. Um, you know, they are very well organized. Um, they, and, and they've, they're very well organized and, and have worked smart politically as well. They kind of divided, divided and conquered it's here. Here's our, here's our Republican members and they're going to go talk to the, to the Republican members. Here's our Democrat members. They'll go talk to the Democrat members. And here's the thing there, there is very an increasingly, uh, increasingly dwindling number of members who do not have a craft brewery providing jobs in their district. It's, wow, it's it's you know it's, it's just growing as an industry. Um, let's see, a couple couple other. If only uh, I could buy my wine at the grocery store, though. You can do it at Target. <laughs> <laughs> just do your grocery shopping at Target, and you're good. A um, couple other things that wanted to get to, but we're we're, we're kind of we're taping out of order again, and so we're we're running really long on the show. Um, UK baseball has their first uh, game today, which. It's gonna be a cold one. I mean, as a former college baseball player, those those February games get frigid. 
My I mean, God, they, they just they... get cold. The, the worst is you play up at Swanee because Swanee is like the highest point in that whole area oh. on the mountain. And it's, it's, I mean, it's just a constant breeze. It's like playing at Coors Field. It's a constant breeze. I mean, it just, it just gets cold as hell up there. That, that'll be a cold, a cold ball game. Have, they won't have to worry about social distancing fans. No, no. And uh, UK <laughs> basketball staying, staying hot. You know, we're, uh, despite uh, Dave Baker's fears that it looks like they will play the SEC tournament. And, uh, you know, if UK can stay, can stay hot, there's a chance they could still make the tournament by running the table in the SEC tournament. So. I mean, uh, my goodness. I remember when people were like, let's fire coach. Cal. Fire Cal, he's terrible. <laughs> uh, one last story I wanted to get to Stephanie, uh, just a, a friend of mine, uh, the, uh, the heart association has announced the Carol bar fund in honor of Andy, Andy Barr's wife, the uh, fun will sport research as well as STEM programming for, for uh, young women in Kentucky. So uh, good on the Kentucky Heart Association to, uh, to uh, get out and, and do something to, uh, to honor Carol Barr. Uh, obviously, look at the press release now. The congressman's got a, got a nice quote in it. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, if you, you're thinking, look, looking for a place to donate some, some money, uh, I'd suggest checking out the American Heart uh, Association there, the Kentucky branch, and uh, maybe donating to the, uh, the Carol Barr Fund. Uh, I think that's all I've got in the news side, Stephanie. Unless you've got anything burning, burning a hole in you, I've got a couple of things. We'll, we'll get to. We'll get to the next time we do a show. Uh, Trump is talking at uh, at CPAC this weekend. Which somebody asked me if I was going to go to CPAC, and I, res- I responded with like a six text line long, laughing. You <laughs> would never. I, I, I'm actually successful in politics, therefore I will never go to CPAC because it's like it's like it's like for for conservative larpers. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it was also an interesting story in the New York Times this, uh, this weekend that uh, I get to on, on Tuesday about whether or not the pandemic could present an opportunity to, to end the practice of tipping. Because we're one of the very few countries in the world where uh, you know, servers at restaurants d- depend on tips to make up kind of a portion of what would otherwise be a guaranteed salary. Uh, most countries, it's, it's a it's a uh, it's a profession. It uh, the, the roots of tipping uh, and, and kind of the sub minimum wage rate that you can pay servers here. Uh, it, it goes back to, to some Jim Crow stuff. You know, you go to Europe and it, it, the gratuity is built in, and you you can tip, and people do tip for for exceptional. Well, people service. looked at us like we were weirdos for yeah. tipping in Barbados. I, I mean, it, it, it's it's supposed to be a reward for exceptional service. It's not supposed to be like guaranteed part of your you know, part, part, part of your pay. Uh, but that, that, that's something I do want to talk about at some point, because I, I do think the New York Times piece made an interesting case for, uh, you know, the, with restaurants having been shut down, a lot of people not having been to a restaurant in a while, it's an interesting opportunity to hit the reset button and maybe, Absolutely. And, 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 and this also goes hand in hand with some moves that the, that the Biden administration is making, having to deal with that uh, sub-minimal, uh, sub-minimum wage rule that allows restaurants to, you know, pay, like an hour $2 an hour. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, you know, elimination of tipping may be required if that, if that rule goes into effect. I think um, the time is ripe for, and you just see too much crap now with nasty human beings. Who, yeah. Which, you know, and that's a net story. We'll, we'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that yeah. on, on the next show. Um, I know Steph, you want to tell people what, we're, what we got coming up after the break? 
Oh, yes. I'm so excited. Uh, Layla Kashan, um, staff attorney for the Kentucky Association of Sexual Assault Programs, the uh, Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers in Kentucky organization I have um, worked with and worked for um, off and on for um, several years, uh, is going to be on to talk about some bills that they are um, focused on during this session, including the um, House Bill 8 pension bill and a uh, health conscious bill that they're concerned about. All right. Well, we're going to take a real, real, real quick break. And uh, you hear the, the Mario coin ding. And we'll be back with a uh, discussion with Lil Kashan about uh, KSAP's legislative uh, agenda this session. Uh, you're listening to Kentucky Politics Weekly. All right, we're back and we're going to talk with uh, Layla Kashan, who is the staff attorney for the Kentucky Association of Sexual Assault Programs, KSAP. Stephanie, I know it's an association that you're, uh, it's, that you're very close with, near and dear to your, your heart, did a lot of work with them in the uh, auditor's office uh, when the kind of the crisis and uh, controversy of, over the uh, uh, rape kit testing uh, numbers came, came out under, under Adam Edelin's administration. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm going to kind of turn it over because I know, Steph, you want to talk about some some uh, legislative priorities for KSEP and, and some things that are going through the legislature this year. I'll kind of let Stephanie lead this conversation and uh, I'll just kind of chip in and be snarky or <laughs> attempt to be insightful from the Republican side as necessary. But uh, Stephanie, why don't you uh, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Trey. Uh, Layla, thanks so much for joining us. Um, yeah, uh, you know, last week or I guess prior to the snowpocalypse week that kind of set us all back, like we needed another setback these days, uh, you had um, testified in front of the um, Senate Committee on uh, Health and Welfare. Is that correct? Is that the right committee? Yeah, it was the right committee. Uh, on Senate Bill 85? Um, 83. Tell 83. Mm-hmm. Yeah, details, not my jam. Geez, uh, Stephanie, get your bill numbers right. It's uh, commonly referred to as the health conscience bill. Um, It would essentially allow uh, medical providers to opt out of providing care based on any um, of their uh, religious or otherwise deeply held uh, views. Um, This uh, is somewhat of an alarming and shocking bill to me, but I would like for you who is way more of the expert on this to tell us about it, um, why they want it and why it's fraught with problems. Sure. So first I just want to say thank you all for having me. This is my first podcast. <laughs> so, Hey, Hey. Oh, and, wow. And, it, yeah. it's, it, it, it's like our first, every time we do it, it's <laughs> <laughs> amateur hour. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just hang in there with me, but jumping into Senate bill 83, We did testify against the bill. It was heard last year as well as Senate Bill 90, and we testified against it then. There were some changes made since our first um, testimony, right? Last year, we were really concerned about access to sexual assault forensic evidence exams. And so they tried to address that by writing in an exemption uh, for those exams in the new bill. They also added an exemption for emergency needs, but even with those exemptions, the bill is still quite alarming. And ultimately we have a different reading of the bill, I think with the sponsor, we have met with the sponsor. He graciously sat with us and one of the directors from, I think it was one of the domestic violence shelter programs, not one of our rape crisis centers. And we talked for about 30 minutes uh, with questions and hypotheticals and 
we just aren't seeing things the same way. And so we are concerned that folks can be turned away based on any belief that a provider has. And it's not clear in the bill whether they, a person can refuse a service for one day and one person, but then provide it another day, another person, for example. So that's been one of the things that we've raised. And also, if you've seen the list of how many people are opposed to this bill, I mean, it, includes, it includes folks like the Mental Health Coalition. I mean, these are folks who have this expertise. And I know you mentioned that I'm an expert. No, I, maybe in some things, this would be an area where I'm still learning. And I'm even leaning and asking those other folks like, okay, so what do you think about the bill? And they have grave concerns. And I want to add that our programs who have therapists, so the rape crisis centers have therapists that can provide services for survivors and their families and friends. And this bill, we read it as saying that therapist could turn people away. I see the service as therapy. And so how can you turn someone away for therapy? So I think that's just another thing that we're reading the bill in a way that has these broad, um, harmful, potentially life-altering consequences. And we're just- Give us an example that you're afraid of, something that may play out. Sure. I mean, so I'll kind of go back to what I was just talking about. Um, So a client, a, a person who's been sexually assaulted goes to a rape crisis center and asks for therapy. And then they say something like, you know, it was my husband who raped me. And the person says, well, my belief is that spouses can do what they want within a marriage. So therefore you're not like, we're not going to serve you here. Now, I will tell you that if when we gave, we've given some of these examples. And one of the things that we heard in response was, well, you shouldn't hire someone who has beliefs that are not in line with your organization. So then we're like, yeah, sure, we agree with that. But if we do and we don't know they have that belief and then they turn someone away, this law says we can't do anything about it. So that was going to be my next question. Mm -hmm. The employer basically has no um, recourse. Correct. And so, I mean, the way it's written, it's it's really broad. Like even saying, well, you can't work in this capacity. We're going to move you to a different capacity. Even that change in duties can be seen as discrimination under this law. Well, and, and I, my assumption would be that based on current law, the current religious freedom uh, law that exists, as a prospective employer, you can't not hire them based on that reason anyway. So you may find out that they have some Old Testament-esque style beliefs um, but based on that alone, you can't not hire them or that's grounds for them to go after you for discrimination. Is that, and I don't know the religious freedom act in and out, so I'm not going to try to quote it, but there are rights protected under religious freedom. This law though, goes much broader than that. It's right. not just about religious beliefs. It's about your moral or conscious belief. Uh, there's a, so you don't even have to cite, uh, a religion to say, I don't want to do this X, Y, or Z service? Not as I read the bill. It says your conscious is defined as religious, moral, ethical, philosophical beliefs or principles. And so that means is anything, you know, I mean, the definition, I pulled the definition of uh, principle 
And it's a rule of conduct based on beliefs of what is right or wrong. I mean, it's just so broad. broad. And I think, you know, this bill can, to get it what the sponsor wants, I just think the language needs to be narrowed. Well, and where's, I had seen in the Herald Leader story that the uh, Kentucky Medical Association and the Hospital Association, they were never even asked for input on the bill. Where do they stand on this? Do you know? It's unclear. Last I did reach out to the hospital association um, and they were not taking a position at that time. This was prior to the bill being heard. I do not know if they have an updated stance and I'm also unaware of where KMA stands. I mean, imagine putting a bill out that affects uh, an, an industry and not consulting the industry group on it, right? Um, you know, I just can't get past the, the, the whole, and, and, you know, I don't know if you know this, Layla, um, Trey's wife is a physician here in Lexington. She's a neurologist. Um, the one thing I can't get past is, is this just so flies in the face of the Hippocratic Oath that um, physicians fall under. I, I just don't understand. I, I, this just... Trey, your thoughts? You know, I think there's two buckets here. I think, you know, there's emergent medicine where, you know, if you've been in a car wreck or like you just said, if you've been sexually assaulted or raped or something and, and you're, you know, you're going to a, a hospital or someplace for, um, for emergent care, you know, there definitely needs to be, you know, you, you have a duty to, to take, to take care of that person, regardless of, you know, your, your philosophical beliefs. I, I think that there, the other bucket though, is, you know, more kind of general practitioner, let's, let's call it uh, uh, elective type stuff. And this is where you get into the whole, you know, the, the gay bay, you know, the, the, the gay wedding cake and, and all that stuff is, you know, the question I always come down to, this is a, this is a, this is a free enterprise and a free economy. Like, why are you going to that person? If, if you know that they, that they don't share your beliefs, uh, you know, on, on, on that, though, this important of an issue, like, you know, so I, I, I understand, I, I understand part of it. You know, I do think that you're right. I, I haven't read the bill, but you know, from what you're saying, the, 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 the definition may, may be defined too broadly. And that, and that'd probably be another one of those deals where we pass something and then have to spend a bunch of money for it to get thrown out in court. Um, but, that being said, I, you know, I, I understand where it's coming from on a, on a, uh, you know, individual freedom and, and on a, on a non-emergent basis. Like, like I said, I, you know, why, why are you going to that doctor? If, 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 if you're so, if you diverge so greatly in, in belief now, you know, you, of course, then you also get into problems with access to care in some of the rural areas of the state where there's just, there's, there's not enough doctors. And that's a, you know, that's a whole broader discussion that we could have as to why that, why that is. Well, um, and it's but, not but, just that. I mean, I don't know if I'm going in for a knee surgery, I'm, I don't get to interview my anesthesiologist in advance and ask him how he feels. Yeah, but something like that, people. like, but yeah, but something like that, like, you know, I, I mean, my reading of the bill is it's 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 performing a procedure that you that you have an issue with, not like, well, you're gay. I'm you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to give you a vaccine or something like that's, What's your interpretation on that. The service versus the, the individuals. Yeah. So, I mean, there well, there are a couple of things I want to hit on that you all brought up, because I do think it's valid to say, like, I'm not going to go to someone that I know doesn't serve for what I'm looking for. Right. right. But we don't always know what a philosophical belief is. And I mean, that's one of the things I asked in my testimony is how are we supposed to know as consumers all the things that like if I'm just going to my general practitioner, 
who's the only one, Trey, another point you hit on, in a rural community who says, well, I just don't do that service. No, it might not be an emergency service, but it might be something that I need and want as a consumer. And they're the only person that- could but, 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 the, but, then you get, but then you get in a broader issue that I have you know, with the way that the economy and the way the law treats doctors is, why, you know, I, I'm not going to walk into a 7-Eleven and demand that they give me a Big Mac. You know, it, it's, 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 you know, if, if a doctor is not providing a service for one reason or the other, whether it's, whether it's philosophical, whether it's insurance related, you know, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, it's, it's wrong for the government to mandate that a physician perform a right. practice that they don't want to do. But, but I, it comes back to how do I know, right? So right. are these beliefs going to be on their website? How will employers know who they're hiring? Um, and so, and then how can employers take action if it is in conflict with what they offer? So, and then this part about services versus person, mm -hmm. they just seem so intertwined based on the reading of this law as broad as it is. It's hard to see how it won't, um, even if it's unintended, how it won't play out in that way. And that's why, I mean, we suggested language to address that. We're not saying throw um, everything out, but if, if we want to make sure that's how this bill reads and that people don't try to take advantage of it for something that it wasn't intended to do, then we can add in some language to clarify that. Yeah, and, and that's, that's something I was going to ask you. Know, we, we've got a lot of legislators that listen to this, to this show, and you know, some of them may not have heard your testimony, you know, kind of 50,000 foot view. What, what is something that you, that you all would suggest that would be a medium somewhere in between protecting uh, the physician's right to, uh, to, to practice as they see fit and protecting access to care, you know, what, what's it, or, or is it just the whole thing too fraught? You know, is, is there a reasonable median somewhere that, that, that you guys would, would suggest? Well, we would say the whole thing is too fraught. Um, but if a bill like this is to move, because often bills move that we don't 100% support, but we can say, well, this is a better version and you know, that's it. And we're not going to, if you're going to do this, right. maybe do it this way. Right. And, and we're in that position often. And so we, we do that. We say, you know, we don't really think this is a good bill for, for Kentuckians. And this is why, or specifically for sexual assault survivors. But at the same time, if you're going to move it, because sometimes things are going to move. Right. And we want to get the best version of that bill with our feedback. So some of the things we have talked about, we're making sure that these beliefs are shared with the public so that I can go to your website and say, okay, this person, blah, blah, blah. And then I move on and find someone else if that doesn't fit and make sure that there can't be discrimination, like adding in this clarification that there can't be discrimination about me as a person, just making that clear in the law so that no one can then take this law and say, but this is how I interpret it. We don't want that to be a possibility. And see, that, that's the thing. Oh, say, that, that, that's, that's, you know, that's kind of where for me, this whole bill just becomes fraught in that I, I have a serious problem with the government mandating that I have to publicize my beliefs on anything. And if the exchange for that is I have to give up a certain amount of my professional freedoms in order to not have to publicly broadcast, because, you know, we, we, don't, we don't live at the friendliest of times right now. And, you know, in some areas of the state, if you're liberal and uh, some of this country, if you're liberal, in some areas of the country, if you're conservative, broadcasting your, you know, what what your beliefs are on any number of issues could end up with uh, danger to your business, danger to your to your person, to your to your family, because people are insane and they do. 
crazy stuff to people that they disagree with. And, you know, if, if the trade-off is, well, you don't get to pass this, but I, I, well, I, mean, I, 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 I would, I, I would squash the whole bill. If, if the only, if the only way to do it was to, was to, you know, you're going to have to publicize your, your personal beliefs. I, I'm, I'm squashing. I'd I, I vote against the whole package. Just that's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's a problem for me. Did you all hear it? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Layla. No, an alternative would be, so maybe you don't list, these are all my beliefs, because the other thing is beliefs change, you know, and so we talked about like, okay, so you hire me on and I have one belief, but then my life, something happens in my life and I have now a new belief because that's how we get our beliefs, right? It's our life experiences and it's what we're exposed to. But so an alternative would be to list these services that you don't participate in, right? Make it very clear so that no one has any confusion. And, yeah. I, and I think that's a reason. I think that's a reason, more reasonable, reasonable. Uh, 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 did suggestion. the committee, did the committee hear, you know, we talked about KMA and KHA hasn't weighed in publicly or in the, in the committee hearing. Um, did you, did the committee hear from any individual um, medical providers who are asking for this, who are saying, here's an example, because this seems like another one of those damn bills that is in search of a problem so right. I, I, I will say the bill sponsor is a former uh, hospital uh, CEO. Correct. So, you know, he, he, he does have a background of, of being in that industry and, and uh, you know, helping up and run the hospital and run her. Fair enough. But did he give an example? Did anybody give an example of where a medical providers um, views were, um, you know, conflicted or imposed upon because sure. of having to provide a service? Sure. And Senator Meredith did. He provided his uh, examples. Last year, he had some folks who testified on why they thought this bill was important. This year, nobody was there. And I'm not sure if it was um, because nobody was willing or nobody was able or the time limits. You know, I'm not really sure. We did have a lot of discussion on this bill. There were probably five or six groups there that expressed concerns. Um, like I said, including the Mental Health Coalition. And I, and I repeat them because I just think there's an expertise from them about what they've mm-hmm. seen and how different laws like this have played out and how we need to protect services. Um, or maybe I shouldn't be yeah. saying protect services, but protecting people, people in this, it's this bill needs to have different language. And a couple other things, um, you know, that, was, that were even mentioned in the committee, like Senator Carroll asked, well, if you, can you refuse a service one day, but not another? That is even, there was a question there. Senator Westerfield asked about um, how can you object to an initial consultation on anything? Um, Well, maybe not anything, that wasn't his language. He just said, how do you object to an initial consultation? So, you know, there were some valid concerns brought up just about the language and how do we clarify and make sure we know what this bill actually does before Mm -hmm. we pass a bill like this. This seems to have so many potential ramifications, Uh, but wanna move on um, other bills that are on your all's priority list. I know the um, pension bill is, uh, and I read a great piece, uh, I think in the Herald Leader yesterday. Um, This is uh, your organizations, your um, crisis centers are fall on the side of uh, will benefit from these changes. Tell us uh, about this. Correct. So thanks for bringing that up. House Bill 8 is what we call the quasi-pension fix. You know, for years and years, Kentucky's been grappling with what's going on with the pension system. And we have really been fallen victim and captive to that because most of our programs um, entered into the system when the contribution rate was, you know, 
five, 8%. It was, it was manageable. It was a benefit that we wanted to provide to people who are serving survivors. And so over the years, you know, that's increased right now. We've had a freeze. Thankfully, the legislature has provided to us as quasi agencies, a freeze at 49% employer contrib contribution. And we're thankful for that. And I don't want anyone to think we're not because we are. And that's been, we've been able to keep our doors open and not worry about reducing services because of that. But every year we have to go back and say, hey, it's still not fixed. What can we do? So House Bill 8 came along and it was a similar version to House Bill 171 last session. Um, and Representative Duplessis is the sponsor. And he's worked really closely with, um, you know, the retirement system. He's on the or I think he's the chair of the Public Pension Oversight Board. And so you, you have this knowledge, they've been trying to figure out what can work and House Bill 8 is that fair and equitable solution. So we as rape crisis centers have, most of us have been paying in more than what we actually owe for our own unfunded liability. This bill makes that uh, fair across the board. So you will be paying as an organization based on what you owe. And then we would pay normal costs going forward, which will, keep the system stable, right? And right. it gives an incentive that folks don't get out of the system because they can no longer afford it. The more people right. that get out, the more unstable the system becomes. Right, and that is, uh, you know, what this is addressed, uh, you know, for, for lay people to understand, you know, basically you had many organizations that started to uh, fire staff, basically, and uh, go to, um, using hiring agencies, employment service uh, agencies to get people off their payroll so that then they don't have to pay in. Well, the problem is, is there are still retirees out there collecting benefits who worked at those agencies for years. So you're trying to say, oh, okay, well, I, I don't want to keep paying anymore. I'm out, except you're still responsible. You still should be responsible for those hires. Having said that, um, it does seem that it is going to be a bit of a crisis for those agencies that, look, the rules were what they rule were at the time. Okay, yes, was it gaming the system? Sure, but it was allowed. And um, some of those agencies do provide critical services. Some of the mental health agencies like North Key up in Northern Kentucky, I mean, they are looking at an astronomical uh, uh, bill come due for them. Um, so I, I, what the story I've read says, you know, there may be some um, budget help, uh, maybe some help put in the budget to, for some of those organizations. Uh, Trey, what are your thoughts on both sides and, and the, the organizations that are now going to see these insane uh, tabs to have to pick well, up? And, and before you jump in, I, I mean, do want to clarify, North Key is in, it, they are not the norm of what happens. Right. The they are the most far extreme and no one else is even close to that. That's good uh, and to, not clarify, to say yeah. that we don't, we absolutely care about those services, but it has to go back to what they owe and why are they in the, sure. why is it at 2000% at this point? Yep. You know, I, I mean, there, at some point, somebody's going to have to come up with a way to and it's probably just gonna have to the state's got to suck it up and dump some money in because they let like the the oh what's the group that uh uh mckenzie cantrell works for the equal justice 
like like they're like they're in they're in the the system like there are so many groups that have nothing to do with state that are not state government groups that were allowed into this into this retirement system and a lot of them are getting out uh which probably for for the long-term health of their of, of, of their organization is is good but it's not great for their past retirees and people currently in the system at some point in time the state is probably going to have to just bond money that's that 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 cover that co- that covers the costs of the mistakes of the past of letting these groups into the system. Right. Uh, well, and, and, but, and I want to clarify about not being a state employee and being a quasi. At least for us, our programs are providing services that are mandated by state law. Yeah, yes, but they're, they're, contract they're, with the cabinet. Yes, right? but, so but I want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, for, but, the, yeah. but there's there's also like credit unions and stuff in there, like uh, just, the League of Cities, yeah, like Caco group, group, groups that groups that should never have been allowed in that system are in it, and there, there's just. I, you know, I, I don't see any way around just having to infuse some cash into it in order. I mean, we're just going to have to, we're going to have to pay money and it's going to be temporary pain, pay money to reset to z- the board to zero and be able to be able to move forward. And, and, and probably the only way, the only way to fix that is, is money. And then, you know, but then we're going to have to be more, we're going to have to have a better system moving forward. And I think that's where, you know, there, there's no point in fixing it at the front end unless you've got, the uh, there's no point in, in, in solving that problem until you've got a hundred percent fixed in the back end. I think you know we're getting close to it, but they're still kind of they're still kind of patching patching holes rather than rebuilding the house. Yeah. And that's that's eventually what's going to have to happen. And you know Stephanie, I'd say it. The, the, shh, the teachers are going to have to be in on this one too. They're going to have to be part of you know it, the whole system is going to have to be re- reset to something that is that is sustainable in the long term um but you know we, we do have to figure out a way to make good you know even bevan what he repeatedly said is is you know we made an obligation to people who were who entered the system and we owe we owed the people that we made a deal with we, we owe them to make good on the deal then we got to figure out how to make a deal that is actually long-term sustainable that we that we can continue to make good on and i, I you know they've done they've done especially for like the pretty much everything except for the teacher system they've made a lot of strides to make the system better i think it it, it probably still needs a little bit of improvement but you know we're 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 we're, we're moving that direction but yeah i mean there's eventually there's just gonna have to be a cash infusion to to kind of reset the board on these things well and, and that's precisely right and the reason is because if you go back to the history of this sure you can say benefits were generous but that is not how we got into this mess I was once named the pension queen because I wrote so many flipping stories about the pension system. I mean, we're talking like over a decade ago when this train was just starting to come off the tracks. And it was a result of bipartisan uh, underfunding by Democrats, Republicans, the legislative branch and the executive branch. Um, they, they thought that the pension system was, uh, you know, had an adequate amount of money. So they started to each year gradually should basically people who couldn't do math and didn't understand actuarial science that said, well, if we just shorted a little bit here, you know, unfunded cost of living adjustments and, uh, you know, wanted money to, you know, build, you know, little league fields and, and, you know, big ribbon cutting esque sexy projects. And uh, that's how this ball got rolling. And uh, it is a bit unfair that for several years, the, 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 you know, the burden has fallen on the agencies that did nothing wrong. You know, you can say North Key gained the system, but the rules were the rules. They followed the rules. They were allowed to do it. 
so it is a cash infusion um, going forward. And, and by, by the way, don't 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 forget also, you know, not just underfunding. There 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 have been other ways that the system has been gamed. You know, Steve Bashir was famous for I've, I've cut I've cut the size of government. We've got rid of every, every, every employees. Sure. Well, no, yeah. no. Well, did you know what they did? They moved employees who were employees who were making, and most of them were most of the people who he he cut were people making a hundred thousand plus a year who who were paying lar- more money than most people into the retirement systems. He cut them and moved them to to service contracts, which mm-hmm, were ten ninety nine that did not pay money into yes. the retirement system. So you know there there are the government multiple, branches are just as guilty. There here are multiple the, the ways that pe- the people have gained this system. Is, you know it's not just underfunding. It's you know the, the whole system just for for too long was was neglected and allowed to rot. And say what you want about Matt Bevan, he at least took it seriously and and demanded we're going to fund these freaking things. And you know. Uh, he he, I, I'm I'm the first person in line to jump up down on his chest for a lot of a lot of the faults <laughs> that he had, uh. But you know, he he is the first governor we've had since the '90s who cared about the pension system. And I would and loop it, us back around the House Bill Eight and saying you're talking about this long-term fix. I mean, over 30 years, we are paying our unfunded liability, so that will be an infusion into the system. Absolutely. In addition to continuing to pay our normal cost. Yeah, but we also we also need to get all those non non quasi government groups that are in that are in the quasi government system we need to boot them out and that's that's going to be a cash drop so there's going to have to like i said we're going to have to reset the board to zero and 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 get get that get that fund back to what it was originally intended to be and that's going to require cash at some point because you're going to be kicking organizations currently paying into it out of the system yeah layla before we go any uh other pieces of legislation on your radar, either that you're in support of or hoping does not pass? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every year we're, you know, we have bills that we're so happy to see. And then we have bills that we're like, wait a minute, talking (laughs) about that. So um, before we move on from House Bill 8, I do want to let everyone know it has passed the House unanimously and we're now waiting on the Senate to move. So that's where that bill is just for anyone who's following it. Thanks for that update. Um, But some of the other bills, I want to throw out bills that we support Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's important to lift up folks who are doing work that we think will help survivors. So, for example, Senate Bill 80 is uh, Senator Danny Carroll's bill that will add in ways to hold law enforcement accountable. Um, Senator or yeah, Senator Julie Rocky Adams, Senate Bill 84, the Dignity 2 bill. That's Mm -hmm. one that we're happy to see move. Uh, Senator Westerfield, Senate Bill 36, the juvenile transfer, adding discretion for that. Um, as well as Representative Massey's House Bill 126 that increases the felony theft threshold. So that all, some of these seem like, why are we supporting that? But KSAP is also a member of the Smart on Crime Coalition. Mm-hmm. And as a member there, you know, we're, we want to see people, um, there are so many reasons why we're at that table. I mean, including if we want to talk about oppression, but we also want to talk about rehabilitation. Uh, and so there are ways that we work, you know, on issues that seem like they might not be ours. And then lifting up, I think the last one I put on my list is House Bill 273. It's Representative Freeland adds protection in open records for photos or videos of rape or sexual assault and some other things. Um, that one we did, even though we like it, a lot of times we love these bills and we just have a little bit of feedback. So we've asked for some clarifications there and I've been working with him on that. Um, it has passed the House and it's in the Senate now. Uh, the other bill, uh, last bill I'll mention that is one that we would like to see move, but move differently, 
would be House Bill 145, and that's campus students' administrative rights. And we just want that bill, we wanna make sure that it ensures rights for both the student who is reported of a code of conduct violation, as well as students who are making those reports in any, any potential code of, violate, code of conduct violation, not just specific to um, Title IX, for example, which is very important. And we have worked with the sponsor and she has made some changes to clarify some Title IX concerns. Um, unfortunately, Title IX, the way it's narrowly written now, does not include all sexual misconduct. So there would still be cases of sexual misconduct on campus that would not give any rights to those um, students who are harmed, as well as examples of if a student was bullied, if a student was um, hazed, if a student had something stolen from them, right? Those students don't have rights under this bill, but I think we all have the same goal. And that's to make sure students are protected and they have access to education. And that's why I think we can, we can get there, but we need to make sure this bill helps all those students. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole topic we could spend many, many minutes and podcasts on in the future. Um, but keep us posted on that. Maybe we will uh, well, maybe, maybe, have maybe you back I'll, on to discuss. We got well, Michael, Michael Frazier on too, who's, who's a friend of mine, right. who's, who's, who's kind of the lead, lead horse pushing that one. That's right. And we have talked in the past with Michael Frazier. We've had some other places where we did not align on bills. And so that by, is- by the way, that is Hugh Hefner award winning Michael Frazier. What? <laughs> for, 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 Hugh Hefner has a First Amendment ad, 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 advocacy award named after him. And yeah. Michael Frazier was was one of the winners of it uh, last year, the year before last. Well, this bill is being <laughs> heard tomorrow. So we're happy to come back and, and you know, continue the conversation. Excellent. Thank you, right. Layla. Layla, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, we'll keep an eye on all these bills as they continue to move. Uh, uh, as we mentioned earlier, today is filing deadline for bills. So I'm sure there'll be many more bills filed between now and midnight or whenever uh, that, that will uh, infuriate, enrage, or uh, <laughs> maybe, make, maybe make people happy. I don't know. Usually it's infuriate or enrage. Um, as always, you can get us wherever you, wherever you stream podcasts. If you get us on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give us a review. And we'll be back with you uh, on Thursday. Well, maybe Thursday. I don't know. I might be uh, disposed in the mountains, but we will, we will see. Maybe, maybe Thursday, maybe Tuesday, but we'll be back next time on another Kentucky Politics Weekly.